passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Brandon Thurston from WrestleNomics is up next, and we're going to follow Brandon with John Pollock from Post Wrestling. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. But we can't ignore the math, okay? We can't ignore the data. Go on Google Trends, type in your name, then type in mine. You're a straight line. I'm a pyramid. I like the very direct question on that. Television ratings, downward spiral, fire rate, plummeting. The time is now to turn the math around. We are live with a new edition of Pollock and Thurston coming at you for the second time this week. You are all just so lucky for our presence. I am John Pollock from Post Wrestling, joined by Brandon Thurston of WrestleNomics. Hello. The man man that is out for all public available records himself. How are you today, Brandon? I'm good. I'm I'm ready to yield efficiencies, ready to to action upon uh, these run rate savings. So let's go. Always looking forward to these discussions because TKO holding its second earnings call under the TKO banner itself. And and w- what a banner call it was, uh, Brandon, because, you know, we, we had all this discussion about, you know, what is uh, what is going to be addressed, what is not going to be addressed. Mark Shapiro clearly leaning on his previous work at ESPN, giving all of the media the the easy that the big headline. That's the big headline doing almost a $5.2 billion deal with the best platform in the world. That is the headline coming out of... Did he say that $5.2 billion? Both Ari Emanuel and uh, Mark Shapiro used the figure $5.2 billion. So what's what's a few hundred million dollars off of what we had uh, previously been, been aware of regarding right. this Netflix deal? Maybe there's, uh, you know, just for inflationary purposes, throw in another uh, $200 million. But yeah, I did note that figure that... First, Ari mentioned in his opening remarks and then in one of the questions, that is what Mark Shapiro stating almost a $5.2 billion deal with the best platform in the world. Right. So I guess that would change the AAV to $520 million average annual value, which is taking over not only the U.S. raw rights, but all these international rights, including Canada, UK, I believe India, basically everything international except for Saudi Arabia. It will, will, it will also supersede. But yeah. So do you want to explain how this this was their fourth quarter earnings and full year um, report on the finances? But because of the timing of the deal, they kind of had to splice this where we got almost um, almost four months worth of WWE business. I guess it was from September 12th to the end of December, but they did extrapolate. So we did get comparisons of both the UFC business and WWE business throughout 2023. And uh, the headline is they're making a lot of money together. Yeah. And, and actually, if you go on the uh, 
the, the TKO website here and you click on this, I'm going to give everybody a tutorial here and you click on this historical information. It will bring you to this, this nice document that we used to call the trending schedules back in the WWE only days. And it will show you basically by quarter and by full year, what these companies are making and, and the full year results uh, for revenue. It's like, I'm going to round here for the sake of audio. It's about 1.3 billion uh, in revenue for UFC and roughly the same, almost uh, a little bit higher. So 1.29 billion for UFC total revenue for 2023, 1.3, let's call it 3 billion for WWE and UFC is more profitable. Um, at least according to a non gap measure, their adjusted EBITDA where they exclude not only taxes, depreciation, amortization, but also other things like legal fees and merger costs and just other things that they want to exclude. And, and that tells us that UFC is quite a bit more profitable than WWE, but WWE is profitable too. And if you prefer a gap measure, we, we know through the, the quarterly report or through the annual report that, that these companies combined were profitable in terms of net income, uh, not as profitable as they will be next year or that they were uh, the prior year because there were so many uh, merger-related costs. Uh, severance is included in that as well. Yeah. And just breaking down those columns, comparing the two, I mean, you, you can see like where, where the media rights uh, line up between the two, where live events are. Of course, WWE runs considerably more live events than UFC. Uh, but in sponsorship, that is a big area for WWE to make ground on with UFC. I think Mark Shapiro had stated when they, when they took over UFC, they were doing around $50 million annually in sponsorship. So this is, that's not too far from where WWE is now, but it's a it's a significant uh, gap in the UFC's favor when it comes to sponsorship deals. And this coming on the heels of that major deal that they have promoted with Bud Light that is that they have called their their most valuable in history. Yeah. When, when it comes to the differences in these businesses, obviously, there's a lot of similarities in terms of TV rights and they both do live events. WWE does more live events, but yes, UFC has way more sponsorship revenue, but WWE, the, the advantage, I guess, that they have in that comparison is they have way more consumer product licensing, and that's through things you would imagine, like not only video games, but also action figures, trading cards, and merchandise, and things like that. I, you know, like, what's the big merchandise product for, for UFC? You don't think of, I don't think of any way, UFC being this big merchandise business like we think of WWE. So it's come that time in the show where we have to talk about this mysterious figure. He might be a large individual. He might hold a lot of large value in certain You're not going to say his name, are you? Please don't say his name. I'm going to tap dance around this because I might have a cattle prod in case I state his name. But here is how he who shall not be named was referenced during the Q&A section, courtesy of friend of the show, Brandon Ross. If um, a very large shareholder were to um, sell a lot of stock at once, would you be open to buying that stock directly? On, on the second question, look, you know, I think we would, you know, generally be opportunistic uh, or look to be opportunistic and we would view uh, any opportunity through the lens of, of creating shareholder value. Uh, there was a shareholder that sold stock. Um, as you know, we participated, as I mentioned in our prepared remarks, to the tune of $100 million, roughly 1.3 million shares. And Brandon, just, I mean, let's call it out. I mean, obviously, we're talking about Vince McMahon specifically. In terms of cashing stock, yep. he still holds, I believe, 20 million shares. Um, exactly. It's all registered. And he'll do whatever he's going to do. And gonna, we're, we're on the sideline. We'll have a look. We'll see. We have no idea on timing. We're not having any discussion with him. He's given us no point of view on his motive or if he plans to sell or not sell or if he does, how much. So, you know, we're, we're going to wait around uh, and find out just like you. 
So I love the notion that Vince McMahon, uh, within the course of uh, just over two months, he has gone and now his legacy is he is a shareholder in the company. That is uh, pretty much Ari Emanuel's identification of him. And then Mark Shapiro uh, letting letting the uh, the cat out of the bag regarding who we are talking about. Uh, we're going to wait around and find out just like you, whatever this guy's going to do with his stock. God knows. We don't know. I thought it was interesting that Mark Shapiro mentions that they're not having discussions with him, which is I, you could read into that, I guess. And, and I'm going to that they at least want to put the message out there that they're even though he is resigned, they're not still like, you know, having conversations with him about how to run the business is, is how I took that that, you know, comment in passing to mean. Yeah, you can probably read into that a lot of how. um just what goes into their strategy going in, not to not just the TKO call, but also Endeavor held their call today. Yes. Did not take any questions no. on that particular call, uh, which was interesting. And they're going private. Yeah, I I went into this one. I mean, certainly, I think some people were expecting Vince McMahon to be focused upon on this call. This like this was essentially it. Although when the 10K filing came out, we did get some more insight, sort of into what has gone down involving Vince McMahon. He was his resignation was January 26th, and we learned that last week uh, Ari Emanuel was appointed by the board as the new executive chairman. And Vince McMahon, there was a small amount of stock that he did have to forfeit upon his resignation. Yeah, and um, it's a very it's like less than one percent of his stock. And just to to I guess explain why Brandon Ross was asking the question that he was asking the the risk to this to the business I guess if, if you're purely looking at this from an from an analytical shareholder point of view, which is how the analysts are looking at it. The concern is that he's going to part with his stock. He's going to sell his stock and that's going to, you know, that's going to dilute the, the shares and that's going to cause the share price to go down. So that's, that's the main concern, I guess. Like we point. saw last, last fall when he dumped right. a bunch of stock. Right. Um, and we also did get this. I'm going to put this on the screen here. This, we got an entire paragraph uh, in this annual report dedicated to Vince McMahon headlined, Vincent McMahon. And a shareholder. Yeah, a shareholder. So he's, um, it, it just details the fact that Vince still owes money uh, to certain counterparties, which is an interesting way to, to, to put it, a very uh, SEC filing way to put it. And that refers to, I assume, the uh, the, the people who he owes uh, money money to for NDAs. This is not something new. This is something that has been published for uh, you know almost two years now uh, related to Vince's NDAs, which were revealed a couple of years ago. There's also something else interesting in here about this $3.5 million related to, to money that he paid directly uh, related to W's global headquarters. Not sure what that's about. Um, but it, somebody pointed out to me you know, the, the, the notion that maybe, you know, he's, he's on the hook for a lot of this, a lot of these payments related to NDAs. Uh, and he's, and that money is still being counted towards liabilities. I, I wonder if the, the way that's sort of broadly languaged certain counterparties, if they might use that to get him on the hook for any money that, that W has to pay related to the, the Janelle Grant lawsuit, which, you know, it, it's, if, if it's settled, it's going to cost them probably multiple millions of dollars to get out of it in a settlement. Um, so we'll, we'll see. That's just, just something to keep in mind. It's a question. And what is Vince McMahon's current stock position with WWE that we're 20 aware of? million shares. So 12% of the entire company. So that, that would be a sizable amount that he could, uh, that he is still holding on to um, with, with, with the current value of the stock. So um, that was kind of the, the Vince McMahon front in, in terms of, of the call. And one question that was asked about him, there was also the question that Brandon, you mentioned on Monday, would, what is the status of raw? 
as of now, this place has no home come October the 1st, at least until it'll be homeless until the end of the year when the Netflix deal takes uh, form in January 2025. And here was Andrew Schleimer, who gave his address on the call regarding Raw. As you know, our current deal with USA for Raw ends on September 30th, 2024. And given the lead time Netflix requires to ensure technological readiness, our new long-term deal commences on January 1st, 2025. As a result, our guidance excludes any revenue or adjusted EBITDA in Q4 from the domestic rights fees for Raw. This item is purely timing-related, and we are in the process of securing distribution for Raw during the interim period in Q4. We will provide further details once we have an update. For the avoidance of doubt, in 2025, with the commencement of the Netflix deal, our financials will include a full year of media rights for Raw, inclusive of the step-up built into the new deal. That was company CFO Andrew Schleimer. So they are still working on a distribution deal for Raw for the final quarter of 2024, which I thought would be, be. It's like I can't, the only thing I can imagine, like, you know, like just air it on YouTube for like three months or something. It, it really is, it is to me like for something in terms of the media rights that have so much value to them, even for a three month period. And so much of the discussion was, listen, we can go right up to the deadline. We can overnight this thing to a new, we can go right up until the end of the summer. We are turnkey. And not to say this is a TKO issue. This sounds like this is more a Netflix issue on their end, but it is surprising because this is something that this is a gigantic valuable property for them and i just assume that they would have a solution like in relatively quick fashion after it was announced that this deal wouldn't start till january 1st and yeah it does kind of question like what are what are the options out there of even a a broadcaster that would want this thing for three months and then lose it yeah so so clearly an an early arrival on netflix is not an option because now they're saying that it, it is for the sake of netflix having the, the technology prepared so they can do this live broadcast every week. So I would guess you know, I would just look to their current partners. Um, Fox, <laughs> um, I don't know, USA. And for I would love additional- to know more about the pickup of like Netflix has done live broadcast. They just did the screen actors guild awards on Sunday night. And granted that's a one-off, but how much different is it from doing a, a one-off like award show ceremony to doing three hours on a Monday night? And needing three months extra to be yeah. prepared for this? Yeah, I have no idea. So, Raw, it's going to air somewhere, folks. We just don't know where. Maybe uh, Daily Motion. Maybe that that's going to be the, the, the big one to, to step up for. It's a lot of good wrestling content on there. Um, other, other notes from the call included uh, how this deal with Netflix is going to inform TKO when it comes to creating additional WWE content. It's something Brandon and I talk about all the time. I wish there was more each week of WWE content. Well, our, our fears are put to rest here from Mark Shapiro. Our, our Netflix deal is important to know for everybody. Our Netflix deal doesn't preclude us from creating new content and events and programming on a global basis. We just have some first look rights that they would have a window to, to essentially evaluate. So it doesn't, and NXT just across the board, we have an opportunity to create all kinds of new material, sell it for an incremental rights fee, but they're going to be first in line to pay that rights fee. Like we have with UFC, we have right. the Contender Series, which we created after we had the Ultimate Fighter. 
So you can see we're creative as it relates. And in bull riding, we had the individual and we created the team event. So we have the ability to, to do that within this deal. And ESPN is very similar to Netflix on Ari's point because they have a first look as well on any new programming. They say, no, we're out there collecting incremental rights. That was Mark Shapiro. Uh, man had to have had eight coffees before this. He was so excited on this call. I mean, his energy was 98% of the enthusiasm on this call. But um, yes, it would state that they have a deal that, I mean, it does kind of segue over to like the AEW position that we've talked about with Ring of Honor in that, you know, they created this or relaunched Ring of Honor and went to WBD. They were not interested in it, but Tony Khan has opted not to sell it outside of WBD, even though we knew there was interest, at least, of of talks with uh, CW. CW, Yeah. I mean, what new content could they possibly create? We know there's WWE Speed. I wonder if Netflix got the first right of refusal on that, which is going to be on X, formerly known as Twitter. Um, what I mean, there was also a question in here about, and maybe it was the same question that was being asked in the first place about brand extension and, and what that uh, analyst was getting at is you know, NXT Europe and whether if there is an NXT Europe show, if they really do do that, uh, you know, do, do that brand extension again, um, whether or not, I guess, that that would have a home uh the, the notion is that, you know, okay, it's, it's Netflix and, it's, and it is all over the globe and it is a really strong stream streaming platform. So that should only help them if they're going to do global localization like, uh, you know, Paula Beck introduced all those years ago and put NXT uh, performance centers and brand extensions all over the globe. Yeah, which there actually was a question in relation to NXT Europe that has just become this um topic that i mean it was introduced and it doesn't feel as though there's been any significant inroads on and this was ari emmanuel mark shapiro and andrew schleimer handling the questions and it seemed like they had no idea what this even was and we found out that you know we have the the public speakers on these calls but we never know who the lurkers are like sometimes paul levesque would have been called in out of nowhere that he's here on these calls and in this one nick khan there he is like nick you better handle this. Like they, it did not appear that they were quite up on NXT Europe and um, why Wolfgang is now over in NXT. Yes. So we we heard our first uh, comment from, from Nick Conn, right? He just basically said, you know, he's talked a little about, about global localization and how they intend to do tryouts uh, all over the world. So they're going to bring in more uh, outside talent. So with the company announcing this, uh, both companies generating in the neighborhood of 1.3 billion each, I mean, that should be, everyone can now rest assured, this is the TKO machine moving forward. We won't have to worry about any more additional cuts, right? On the cost side, we continue to make significant progress. We completed our review to identify savings opportunities across each of our businesses. This focused on areas such as finance, marketing, human resources, legal, and IT. In addition, it included overlapping personnel in revenue-generating areas such as sponsorship, media rights, and consumer products. We're now in the process of seeking business integration that can yield efficiencies in other areas, including live events, production, and operations. As we discussed on our last call, we've identified and commenced action upon run rate savings that, when fully realized, will allow us to achieve the upper end of the previously communicated range of 50 to 100 million in annualized net savings. We recognize the portion of these savings in 2023, and we anticipate realizing the balance in 2024. Brandon, do you care to translate that for us? 
um, there's gonna, there's a lot of merger costs that that were associated with putting these these companies together, including huge bonuses for for the people who who made the deal, <laughs> um, and and severance. They they laid off over a hundred employees, and probably all of them are seeing severance of some kind. So future years will be more profitable than this year was because there were so many upfront costs to put these companies together. We also got the breakdown of what exactly this deal entailed with Dwayne Johnson and the IP that was secured. Now, if you wanted uh, short form content on X, I think Dwayne Johnson seated at the table with Ari Emanuel and Mark Shapiro and debating over which terms he can get ownership of and which they would push back on. I think it would be a remarkable negotiation meeting of guys. You've got to give me Rudy Poo. I must have Rudy Poo in all of this. So we have learned all of the IP that he has, everything from uh, the rock, Rocky Maya via the Brahma bull people's elbow team. Bring it Rudy Poo uh, rock apocalypse, which I guess yeah. was some kind of a uh, online game that I uh, was not uh, aware of. I mean, the man has secured a lot, even the great one, Snuck this away. Wayne Gretzky, tough. Dwayne Johnson's got the great one now. Locked the Samoan sensation, the blue chipper, which I think is something like I remember JR calling him way back in the day, probably in the, in the early days. Um, I, 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 I would worry about, um, he's got the word jabroni in here as one of his, uh, one of the terms he has IP rights to. And I, I think the, the word jabroni in wrestling context even goes back before, before the rock started saying jabroni, doesn't it? Uh, significantly before yeah. Dwayne Johnson. If anything, I mean, the estate of one, uh, Iron Sheik could probably uh, right. Contest. Iron Sheik is the one I, I definitely remember saying it in a in a, in a in a way that I felt that he was not taking it from the rock in, in the way that he was saying it. I, I got the confidence that he was saying that that term for decades. So all of the terms that you can see on the screen is what Rock has, along with um, all other IP rights. But they do make note does not include any photographic or audio visual footage. So it's not a case of Rock getting the rights to any of his matches or any anything like that, that I guess they would see a uh, significantly larger value in. But he is now free and clear to put out that line of blue chipper merchandise. He could, I mean, like, not that this is going to happen, but he could presumably go to another wrestling organization and still be called The Rock. Correct. Yes. yes. I, I don't know if that one's going to be happening or not, no, but we can see. That's that's very unlikely. But I, I think it is important to, to remind everybody that that was part of his deal to be a board member. In addition to, not only did he get his IP rights, he got $30 million worth of stock that's going to get paid out to him over the next couple of years. Meanwhile, the, the other guy who was added to, to the board, Brad Keywell, who's a founder of, a, of an AI software company that they added to the board, uh, he got $182 million in stock, and he's going to get another one hundred dollars in stock, and he's going to get a, another $107,000 uh, just for being a board member. So, I mean, what, is, what does that amount to? Not, not quite $300,000. He's not um, Dwayne Johnson. Right. Just, just to emphasize what a huge deal Dwayne Johnson got for being on this board. And what did we learn about the MLW settlement? $20 million is what MLW got. And people are asking me, does that include legal fees? I doubt it includes legal fees. Um, I'm sure, So what I think happened here is MLW got $20 million paid to them from WWE. I'm sure MLW is going to share a healthy portion of that and probably already has with the Kasowitz firm, which is a very high profile law firm that was defending or defending, you know, prosecuting this case. Um, if that's the right term. Uh, but I'm sure Kasowitz firm got a, got a healthy portion of that $20 million. Um, and that probably doesn't include whatever 
W paid in, in legal fees itself to to deal with this case. That's right. And while we're on the the legal front, there was a question about the upcoming antitrust trial that is scheduled for April in Las Vegas, and it was a quick comment about feeling that the the facts and the law are on our side. And this comes days after there was a filing regarding the status of the case and that the plaintiffs and the defense, they are in private mediation talks. So maybe that will materialize. Maybe it won't. But worth noting that they could very well be in the discussions for what would it take to um, to negotiate a settlement, which you would think would be very, very significant. I mean, just when you're thinking about nine plus years of legal costs that went in. This was filed in December of 2014 that this case has been ongoing. Plus, you have the Cajun-Johnson lawsuit that still awaits after this. And otherwise, if they don't settle, this is going to trial when? April the 15th would be the date, which is the Monday after UFC 300, which is also in Las Vegas. Okay. So things to keep an eye on as well. So yeah, $20 million for MLW. So I mean, man, they can spruce up the Melrose ballroom. And I mean, the, the prize money now for the battle riot is, I mean, they can easily put up a mill, right? I, th- I think so. They've got 20 of them to deal with. So four to one, I think. What was the reaction on wall street to the earnings call? Was this viewed favorably? And where's, where's the stock looking at uh, as we speak here? Look at this around $84. The stock is down about two and a half percent on the day, which is, a little worse than, than the, the indexes are slightly down today. So um, the stock market, not loving it, but not hating it super deeply either. Um, I did see Moffitt and Nathanson downgraded their stock price target about $5 from 95 to 90. I haven't seen any other, I did get one sent to me today, but I have not read it yet. Uh, but I didn't, haven't seen any other, you know, sort of pessimistic uh, stock equity reports at this point. Final clip here is just regarding the continued crossover opportunities between UFC and WWE. This comes after both promotions just ran shows at the Honda Center in Anaheim, California with UFC 298 and then Raw the following Monday. So here is their discussion on some of the hidden savings that they are going to find by doing more of this crossover. On the cost side, uh, we benefit from uh, venue rent economics by virtue of bringing uh, both um, shows to the same building and doesn't necessarily have to be, Eric, the same weekend. We can bring both properties and negotiate a multi-visit uh, deal, if you will, with that venue and realize the same um, beneficial or preferential rent economics as we did this past weekend. Uh, Ari talked about um, the top line, you know, more beneficial ticket rebates by virtue of packaging these two programs uh, uh, together in the same venue. So, look, it starts to get really interesting, and that's before any logistical savings on T&E, other production, event operation efficiencies, and otherwise. So if you enjoy Michael Chandler screaming into your living room, more to come in the months and years ahead for WWE and a UFC crossover. Yeah. And, and the, the argument that he's trying to make there is not only could it be back-to-back nights, but it could just be a, a fact of TKO negotiating a WWE event along with the UFC event. It could be months mm-hmm. apart, but they might get a better deal because they can no- negotiate it that way. Probably a lot of yeah packaging these and not just for you know some of these events that we're hearing about overseas with, with site fees and you know drilling that that factor too about site fees being a big part that they see in their growth. 
At this point, it's time to welcome in our guest, a uh, a longtime member of the esteemed wrestling media, uh, going back to his show Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And we'll give a, a plug here, his book that I would recommend, Matt Memories, that is out through ECW Press, came out back in 2021. A pleasure to welcome John Arezzi to the program. Hello, John. How are you today? How you doing, guys? Good to be here. Hi, John. How well, you doing? We thought that you would be a, a tremendous guest to have on because you are one of the few that I think can tie in a lot of what's going on with the WWE and Vince McMahon today to your coverage back in 1992 on Pro Wrestling Spotlight. I'm sure those are stories that 32 years ago you didn't envision that you would still be talking about today, but I think this does paint an overall picture of a company that there has been there have been scandals throughout the years and we're having a moment now where a lot of it is being recontextualized and looking at at this history 1992 being a very key part that you know your coverage was very important and vital at the time yeah it's like deja vu for me that this is still going on after so many years after decades of uh, of of all the scandals that have plagued uh, WWE back then WWF and for me it's it's really disheartening in a way uh, that stuff was going on for decades and this latest uh, flurry of allegations and lawsuits and just the the sordid details are, are quite disgusting. <laughs> Um, but, um, it is, uh, you know, it has been a fascinating, uh, look at someone who obviously from the top of the organization, uh, had a, a culture that has hurt many, many people in, in devastating ways. Yeah, and I was re-listening re- to the, uh, the episode that you guys went through a couple of years ago now, uh, of, the, the night before the um before everybody w- went went on the talk show with uh, Phil Donahue yeah and um and just uh, one one thing that you mentioned was that you were getting threats because of the just just covering this yeah uh yeah there were uh, the day of the Donahue show I got a death threat you know and and uh, it was um you know, the thing that gets to me really is like you know when I was covering this stuff and it started really with Billy Graham coming on my show to talk about the uh, uh, steroid uh, trial of dr george saharian and then the sex scandals kind of exploded uh at late 91 early 92 and and it it's just really hard for me to 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 kind of grasp that all this stuff was going on even after all that media coverage and after all the the resignations of uh phillips and terry garvin and uh, you know the Rita Chatterton story, and 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 now it's it's now mainstream media is all over it again, and people are drumming up those stories uh, from ninety one, ninety two again. So it's a feeding frenzy uh, that is larger in scope than it was even those thirty years ago. So um, uh, it's just horrific. <laughs> and now with them being a public company, with Endeavor running them and TKO Holdings. Uh, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen to McMahon now. When you go back to 1992 and these stories start to break, do you look back at that in your own career as a bit of a crossroads of I'm either going to go this direction and cover this in a journalistic way or like 
I'm, I'm going to go, go go away from this story. Like this is supposed to be fun, entertaining. Was that something that you at all weighed? Because, you know, your business partner at the time, Vince Russo, kind of found himself, I think, in, in that position, wanting to go one way and you going the opposite. Yeah, we had a very public breakup. Uh, I had only been working with Russo for, you know, a handful of months. Uh, and uh, when the steroid scandal started and the sex scandals uh, took over, uh, Vince uh, had a different way of wanting to cover the business. He wanted to be more entertainment based and I wanted to be more factual. I had uh, evolved and developed the pro wrestling spotlight radio show into an insider show, uh, reporting on what was going on in the industry, uh, which had really not been done before on a radio forum. Uh, and uh, it, it caused uh, a breakup with me and Russo back then. But my, my way of covering wrestling uh, was not, uh, embraced by WWF at the time at all. Uh, when I first launched the show in 1989, they cooperated with me uh, and they were kind of telling me like, you know, let's cover the business in a positive way. And then I had Bruno San Martino on as my second guest. And uh, he said some disparaging things and that was when cooperation ended. And that's when we really, uh, they really uh, took me on as kind of someone they didn't want to do any business with or acknowledge me, uh, which is fine. But um, this stuff has been going on for, for decades. They didn't like anyone covering it the way I was covering the business. Yeah, I think one of uh, Bruno San Martino's best promos was on your show there. Um, but I think, you know, I think back to, to the early scandals in, in 92, and I, I guess I think one of the reasons why more wasn't done at that time is maybe just the lack of mainstream coverage and lack of seriousness that, that news media gave those stories at the time. And I don't know, maybe even goes as far as, as the federal government deciding to indict Vince over steroid trafficking rather than the sexual harassment allegations that, that, that were, you know, going around at the time. Um, but I mean, so, I mean, I guess, what do you think of the, the mainstream coverage that was happening at that time? And, and was it enough? Uh, it, it wasn't enough. Um, you know, of course, the uh, it was a feeding frenzy for a while. Then it went away and things didn't continue uh, for the, almost the same reasons as why things were not brought out in the open in these situations that are current. There were people paid off. You know, there were ring boys that were paid off at the time. And Tom Cole uh, was one of them. And then there were others. I mean, they did a really good job. And it comes right from the top of uh, of quieting people by paying them off. So when these things go away, and even the day of the Donahue show, I remember it vividly, Tom Cole was there. And Tom Cole sat with Miss Elizabeth and Linda McMahon because he had worked out a, a deal. They had paid him off the day of the Donahue show. Uh, so these are the types of things that happen. And now with all these NDAs uh, that were discussed and these settlements uh, there, there, there is a lot out there. I mean, how many are there? 15, 16, 17 NDAs right now, uh, which, um, uh, you know, I think the tip of the iceberg, uh, with, uh, uh, with the recent, uh, lawsuit from Janelle that I think that's, I, I really still think it's the tip of the iceberg. I think more, there's more to come here. You go back to th that period. I'm, I feel the same way as you, John, that I think that of what we know, like we know of Tom Cole's accusations. We knew of. You know, and he's dead. He died of suicide. 
yes. a couple of years ago. And uh, another ring boy recently just, just came forward uh, with Lee Cole. Like, it does make you wonder, like, the numbers that could be out there. And, you know, someone like Mel Phillips that, you know, it's – I can't imagine the difficulty for you in that situation covering the story and having an existing relationship with, with Mel Phillips just as a fan growing up as well, if you can speak to a little bit. Yeah, Mel was a peculiar guy, and I was impressed with him back when I was a kid because of his stature. He uh, said he worked for the Athletic Commission of Pennsylvania. He was there at TV. He was, uh, you know, he he befriended me uh, back then, and, um, you know, I didn't know. I, I saw little things that I started to question uh, when I was uh, friends and hanging out with Mel back then which kind of alarmed me. I mean, there was a situation even uh, he would come to stay by my house, uh, 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 my family's house on Long Island. And there were a couple of young kids who lived in the neighborhood that he kind of like took a liking to. And I was like, why is he, you know, he comes here and he's, he's looking for these kids, you know? Uh, so there were these, these, these things, these signals, um, even to the point uh, where there are some situations where, you know, going to TV taping in Philadelphia and then they would tape in Hamburg the next day and uh, drive with him. And uh, there's there was a hotel and, you know, he always wanted to, you know, share a room or whatever. And I and I just I was always a private person. I never did that. So uh, when the allegations came out about Mel, it really didn't surprise me what did surprise me is that the organization didn't get rid of him when they could have i mean everyone knew about him it was a it was kind of it was well known the foot fetish stuff that he had just kind of like you know the guy who ran the company should have should have um uh, cleaned it up and he never did and I think that that's something that we have seen this this consistency with is that with, with Mel Phillips that he was reportedly let go in 1988 with the knowledge of this and and brought back. And brought I back. mean, we recently interviewed uh, Nick Kaniski stating, you know, like Terry Garvin made a proposition towards him. He went right to Vince McMahon yeah. and was yeah, not no action was taken. And it seemed to me that there was if there was a lesson that Vince McMahon took from all of this, it was the utilization of NDAs and making problems go away as opposed to seeing these root problems and removing them and, and making changes. And that is the, all these stories that I think are coming to the forefront. It has this consistency that alludes to like the culture situation that Janelle Grant outlines here of secrecy and making problems go away rather than addressing them. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, I'm very curious to know who else is out there and, you know, who has been paid off and who, like Janelle, you know, didn't get all of their money in it with an NDA and who's going to come out and what type, what type of internal investigation that's going to continue? Because uh, I honestly feel that if anyone in the organization knew what was going on and knew what, um, you know, these allegations, if they were aware of the allegations against McMahon and Laurenitis, uh, all of those people, no matter who they are, should be should be left and brought out and never to return to the company. Uh, TKL Holdings Endeavor, they have got to make sure that none of this ever happens again. And anyone who knew anything should be should be terminated, should be removed. 
it, it really strikes me in, in, in talking to, to Nick Kaniski the other day that his his allegations when uh, Terry Garvin allegedly propositioned him that happens in you know, around late 86 and early 87. And if you think about when uh, Rita Chatterton alleges that she was raped by Vince McMahon, that's July, 1986. So he, I, I re- really think, you know, this is, you know, if, if you believe the allegations, this is Vince McMahon, you know, already engaged in, in sexual misconduct at that time. And then, you know, it's kind of no surprise that he's not taking sexual harassment claims very seriously. And, and we, we know the claims that, that happened decades later as well. Yeah, very true. And then the Chatterton thing, you know, she was really, uh, she was dismissed. They said there was sour grapes that she wasn't good at her job or whatever. And she went through decades of misery knowing what happened to her or allegedly happened to her. And then she finally got her settlement not too long ago. Uh, but it, it really just, it really disgusts me because it's gone on and it's resurfaced. You know, I, I can't begin to tell you guys on, on, you know, when I, when I go back and look at the history of what I did uh, on pro wrestling spotlight and the, and, and, you know, the, uh, me being condemned for even covering this stuff back then, like I had some sort of agenda. All I wanted was for this stuff to stop and for this never to happen again. So that's why I that's why I covered it the way I did. And there was a lot of rumors. There was a lot of speculation. You know, not all of it, of course, true. You know, the one thing I do regret is – is really when I when I was covering it back then, lumping Pat Patterson into all of this. Uh, but when you think about it, you know, Pat was responsible for the ring crew. He was the guy who brought Garvin in. He was the guy that was responsible for Mel Phillips. And uh, uh, to this, you know, after many years of thinking about it and, and, and hearing the facts, I don't think Patterson participated uh, in, in what was going on back then. Um, personally, and that's my a personal opinion, and, and I and, and I regret, you know, some of the coverage that I had back then um, when his name was brought up into the, the allegations that I uh, broadcast all those years ago. When you state that you were condemned at times for for covering this subject yeah. matter, was a lot of that coming from the WWE side, or as well from your own audience as well? That was uh, it was both, bringing, yeah. You know, there was audience members that, you know, what are you doing? And they they get tired of me talking about it. And on the WWE uh, side, you know, I was kind of persona non grata. um, And, you know, I was I was not liked. You know, McMahon hated me. McMahon hated the fact that uh, it was uh, it was it was my communications with Phil Muchnick that put Muchnick on uh, on this back then. And that was only because when they were doing a press conference uh, in New York city and did not invite the wrestling media to announce that they were going to start steroid testing. And I had to sneak in under an assumed name. And, you know, I spoke to much Nick about it and he wrote about it. And then all of a sudden all this other coverage starts. Um, So, yeah, I was kind of a public enemy, number one, you know, and I was a guy who, you know, that they felt they could squash. I mean, they really did. They really did a, uh, a divide and conquer deal with Russo and I, too. Um, so it, there was a lot of stuff going on. They 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 wanted me silenced back then. 
And I, you know, it wasn't like today's environment. I had a broker issue. I had to pay for my airtime each and every week. So, uh, and it wasn't easy to sell wrestling to advertisers back then, especially with all the scandals. So, you know, Muchnick used to say, you know, you're cutting your own throat. I mean, you're covering this stuff and it's only going to hurt you and it's going to hurt the business. But I'm like, but look what's going on. Look what's going, look at the lives that are being impacted and look at the lives that are being ruined from the stuff that goes on behind the scenes here. Not just as a performer, but, a, you know, a, you know, but these kids who are these ring boys taken across state lines, kids coming from broken homes. And uh, so it was exploitive in so many different ways. At the time, the WWE's PR rep was a man by the name of Steve Planamenta. How was he to, to Stevie, deal with? Little yeah. Stevie. What yeah, uh, Steve, I, I um, you know, uh, he was horrific. And I was excited when I started the radio show because I knew him as a little kid. Uh, one of my best friends from college lived in Austin, New York, and he was neighbors with Planamenta. And uh, he would tell Steve about me. And he was, oh, that's the guy that ran a Fred Blessie fan club. So, you know, I called him little Stevie back then. But, you know, Planamenta's lies and his uh, and his just constant um, denying. And, you know, it was just... It was just everything about that era was horrific. It really was coming from the PR department, coming from uh, tops of the organization. It was it was not an easy time to cover it, cover the business at all. And and, and John, this is Steve Planet, a second from the left here that we're looking at. Right. Is that right? Yes, that's Steve right there. Second from the left. There he is. Yep. Wow. Yep. When yeah. when you. When you go back, I mean, this is obviously, you know, a period that I think it's extremely important to to look back on. Are you thinking at the time, like, were you just kind of ingrained and in always saving your shows as well and preserving all of this all these years later? I mean, it's I'm sure there's plenty of, you know, media that just does not exist from that time period. You being there's one not. of them that you can look back in real time of how you were covering this and a lot of, you know, it's just a difference in hearing these people's voices, hearing a Barry Orton on your show, as opposed to reading the quotes and not getting that, that same connection of the words and hearing them. And I'm, I applaud you for saving all this stuff all these years later. Well, yeah, I saved every one of the radio shows and with pro wrestling spotlight, the podcast, uh, each week I go back 30 plus years and listen to the show I did 30 plus years ago. Um, I just completed the original run of the show, uh, which ended in 1995 so I'm going to be relaunching it uh, in a different way, a Pro Wrestling Spotlight Rewind, where I'm going to go back and cover it all over again uh, on a month-to-month basis rather than a week-to-week basis. But it really is fascinating to listen back at all that stuff because when I got out of the wrestling – and I've gone out of, in and out of the wrestling business three, four times. Uh, I, for whatever reason, I'm st- I still have a love for the business because of how much I loved it when I was a kid. And then getting to cover it and getting to do conventions and all the other things that I did. But there was also that element of that it tears you up inside. And that's why I keep leaving. And it was, uh, you know, it's a horrific, it's a horrific business on the inside. And you would hope that as things grow, I think things have changed in a, in a number of ways for the better. Uh, but, you know, right now I still look at the way the industry is run where guys are independent contractors and there's no health insurance, there's no benefits, there's all of that stuff that should be changed 
It should be unionized. There should be more um, uh, of uh, companies. Hopefully Endeavor does this with TKO is to really be mindful of these laws and rules when it comes to sexual harassment and anything that could be associated with it. Um, it was a difficult, it's a, it's a totally crazy difficult business to cover the way I covered it. Were there any figures that come to mind that during this, I mean, this is the wrestling industry and a lot of characters are going to emerge. You're all, this is 1992. You're still parsing (laughs) about what's true. What's not true. 32 years ago. Yeah, I I can imagine it. Were there some people that you looked that were very detrimental to the coverage of this because, you know, that just outright lied or misled uh, the, the public that you felt maybe clouded people's image of the the very serious. What do you mean? So, like people in the media or people? I'm looking about like uh, per- personally looking at somebody, for instance, like a Murray Hodgson, who has been you know yeah. brought up as, as somebody yeah. that that was not credible. Like, did you feel that there were? Uh, people that were less than genuine with what they came forward with that maybe hurt the overall cause. Well, the whole the business is built on deception anyway, so you don't know who to believe. You don't know who's working you or who's making up a story or what stories are real. Uh, if, you know, when it came to Murray, who knew, who, who, knew, who was there? I, I don't know if what he said was 100% accurate or not. Mm-hmm. So there was there were people trying to take advantage, I think, of the situation um there are a lot but but the people that were affected and the people that it really hurt the people who were blackballed because they wouldn't uh you know give a favor to a garvin like a barrio for example i mean there are a lot of stories like that and i'm sure there are a lot of uh, people that have never come out and said what happened to them so maybe this is another window of opportunity for people to come out. But, you know, I just try to look at it as from the facts and from what I knew personally was going on and, and, and people that I kind of trusted and believed back then. Like, was Billy Graham 100 percent accurate when he said, you know, Vince McMahon looked at him in a sexual way and touched his arm in a, a meeting or something? Who the hell knows, you know? So um, it, that's what it's a wrestling. It's a, it, it's a wrestling business. People work you. And uh, so it, it really, to this day, it's like, it's unlike anything I ever participated in, in my life, you know, it's the, it, and, and, and for it to still be going on and these allegations and, and reading that lawsuit and, and I'm saying, my God, you know, what else, what else ha- have we not learned yet? Yeah. And, for a company to get through what it did in the early nineties. There are many companies that would, would not have survived that. And here you are looking back. It was like, not only did they get through this, it didn't seem like anything was learned. It was just to continue onwards. And if problems arise, you simply handle them and, and, and move forward. And I think that's, I, I would imagine on your part is a certain frustration that to go through a period like that. And here you're just looking at this history of this company that is littered with these different scandals and stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, it, it is uh, difficult to, to fathom uh, the business that had a, a bad downturn after the scandals in the nineties. I mean, attendance was down, TV ratings were down, sponsorships were lost. And uh, after the McMahon trial was over with and then, you know, the Monday Night War started in the 90s and it turned around and became more popular than ever. Um, But to know that 
during all of this that lessons weren't learned from the scandals of the 90s, that lessons were not learned, that uh, behavior, uh, it wasn't a one-time thing. It was a behavior that was uh, inbred within the culture of the top of the food chain there. Because you don't know how many people participated in this stuff. And I know Laurenitis now is, you know, turning on McMahon and saying he was a victim too. And so it's going to get really ugly. I mean, and it may hurt the business again. I mean, if, if, who knows if, if McMahon gets arrested, if Laurenitis, if there's a trial and there's, and there's more people coming out of the woodwork, it's going to hurt the business. It could also help the business too. Well, I, mean, I hope it helps the business at the, in the long term. I mean, I think that is sort of the the hope here is that this is this industry that as much as we can look at the advances it's made, and I'm sure it, it's a much better industry in, in many regards. Um, well, yeah. Look when at, you look read at that lawsuit, value it's good. it. I mean, the product today is really good. I mean, the in ring product is good. There's great storylines happening. There's uh, there's a better culture, obviously. Uh, I love the direction of what I see on television these days with the top storylines. So uh, no one wants to see the business hurt or decimated. And I think that, you know, once the removal of Vince finally for him never to return and to him to uh, finally be accountable for everything that was done and wherever that's going to lead on a legal standpoint or on a, you know, perhaps a criminal standpoint because of what went down, they have to, they have to whitewash what was going on. But, you know, the other thing is too, you know, like they did with Benoit after Benoit uh, murdered Nancy and his son and, and committed suicide, they scrubbed him off of all the TV. You can't do that with Vince. You'll erase the entire history of the company. So what do you do? What kind of positions does that put Endeavor in and TKO? What do you do with this guy, especially if he gets arrested and if he gets convicted? You know, that's a tough call. Yeah. And it, it seems like it could be – and we had the, the investigation was disclosed as, as uh, he was subpoenaed and a search was executed on him in July 2023. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've been feeling – and you know, we've been talking about this, John and I have about how it, it feels like it could be any day now he gets indicted because you know it, it just tends to be the case that most grand juries do indict people. Yeah, and with them getting his electronics and his computers and the phones and who knows what's what's there and and, and of course then you know who was he sending photos to? Who was he texting? Who knew? Who didn't know? Uh, when there are allegations that he's in front of a production team and and things that were in those those horrific texts that were made public, like who the hell knows who was receiving this stuff and who was texting back or the fact that it wasn't cleaned up when it became a public company and the fact that Endeavor might have not known what was going on because I guess there were these NDAs that he didn't even tell the new owners about. Mm-hmm. So what it's, it's mind boggling. There's still, I think 
so much to be answered for in, in that sense about what was known during the whole due diligence process, what the heads of TKO were, were aware of, not aware of. I think that there is probably um, a lot of questions to be asked in, in, in that sense. I, I don't doubt that there were many shocking details they read in that lawsuit that they could not have imagined, even even if they were aware of the you know smaller version of things. As we wind down here, how would you assess overall the advancements of just coverage of the industry that you have the perspective on from the early 90s to now? Is it still lacking today? How, Especially from a mainstream point of view of how they cover a story like this versus the early 90s, where as horrific as these details are, there's still sort of that, that tongue-in-cheek coverage of because it's professional wrestling, it's the circus, and how dare we uh, add any sense of seriousness to such well, heavy topics? Well, back then it was now it can be told. It was the Donahue show. It was these uh, evening magazine shows that was you know Eye on America uh, that I had set up uh, back then with CBS. Uh, Dan Rather's uh, news report where um, uh, that was mainstream, legitimate coverage. Uh, but most of it back then was like some of these uh, news magazine shows or mm-hmm. some local stuff. It wasn't on a massive scale that it is now. When you see uh, the mainstream media, you see NBC, CBS, ABC, uh, Fox News, uh, you know, News Nation, all of these people diving deep into this now, this is not going away. This is now full scale mainstream media coverage that did not exist uh, when these scandals came, uh, the other scandals came about in the early 90s. So it ain't going away. I think they're going to be covering this to the bitter end. There are some news organizations that have made this a priority to keep digging deeper into this. Yeah, we have seen a lot of coverage from News Nation. News um, Nation, that's the one that there's like, it seems like every day there's a new report from uh, the reporter there who's really bringing on people. And, you know, yeah, so. Ashley Banfield, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. It's going to be really interesting to follow this as it as it proceeds. I just, I, I'm still in shock and awe that it, 32 years later, here I am doing a show like yours and talking about stuff that happened decades ago. Yeah, and the same, du- and the same dude, and the same, and it's it, it revolves around the same dude. Yeah, you know. It, as far as mainstream coverage, I, I think there are questions to ask around. I mean, look at what who WWE's TV partners are. It's at NBC, Fox, um, and there hasn't been that much coverage from from those two outlets, at least. Um, but I think you know, you look at Vice was doing a lot of coverage on this, and we had Tim Marchman on, who's the writer of, of a lot of those stories, uh, a couple weeks ago. And now, you know, it just came out last week that Vice is just laying off basically everybody, and they're not going to do original yeah. news content anymore. So. Yeah. And what about Netflix? I mean, what happens with the next? You know, Netflix is you know. $5 billion over 10 years. They had been working on a documentary or a docuseries on mm-hmm. McMahon. Is that still coming out? Is that different coverage? Is the ending going to be different? How are they going to handle that? I mean, that's that's one of the most fascinating questions I have out of this whole thing is what is Netflix going to do? And especially with this, this, you know, this docuseries that they had talked about for the last three years or so. Yeah, I mean, Bill Simmons, who was, who was the, the director of it, he had been giving comments. It's making it sound like he was showing people, you know, an advanced screening of it as if it was basically done. And I think they had to reset it after the initial allegations came out and the initial resignation happened. Yeah. So you can't imagine what they're going to do now. I know. I know it puts them in a precarious position, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think it comes down to Netflix and how uh, they view putting out 
like it's one thing to even go back to the initial allegations and you tell this almost hero piece of Vince and you dedicate some time at the end. Well, there was also this at the end. Like these stories, like to me, it colors everything. It to me is the DNA of this man's career are the, the scandals. Like they are embedded yeah. as much of the positive you want to focus on. There's equal and more negative to it that to me, like that's the whole story. It's not just about, well, there's this chapter at the end of a documentary series on like, to me, it's, I just think it, it, will, it will lack a lot of credibility if it comes out and is just this very positive glowing piece. And then it's like a sidebar so they can check off the box that we covered the scandals in there at the end. Hey, listen, the guy was a marketing genius. He built a, a multi-billion dollar brand and company. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, look at the things that he did. That'll, the things that he allegedly did that destroyed lives and even led to people killing themselves. I, I will. We do have a, a super chat question that's relevant to this. Oh. Uh, uh, have you heard or seen the comments from WF veterans, Paul Roma, Mario Mancini about the eighties and Vince McMahon? They seem very credible. Thank you. Well, those were, those were, you know, those were speculation. Those were rumors that happened those 30 plus years ago. Uh, you know, people on the inside knew that something was being alleged by Roma uh, Mancini, of course, because of his relationship with Ashley Massaro, I believe. Is that who's he? Uh, one he, he, he knew Rita Chatterton and Rita Chatterton. Oh, Rita. That's right. Rita. I'm sorry. Not Ashley. Uh, and, and, Rita. According to Mario, Rita Chatterton went, went to him, went to Mario yes. the next day after, after the sexual assault. Allegedly right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and he obviously believed her and, and uh, as did uh, people that she confided with, back then but yeah the, you know it's it's hard for somebody that experienced this 30 plus years ago do you want to go out and open up that can of worms again or do you want to come out and be courageous and say this is what happened to me so this is a thing that's been going on for many many decades so maybe it's time for the person who was doing this or looking the other way when other things happened uh to finally be accountable it's I think it's a it's a very heavy burden on a lot of these victims that you go through a traumatic event and you're going to be spending years of your life trying to get away from that traumatic event to revisit it. It's extremely it's extremely difficult. It's extremely painful. There's a value to it, but I would never want to place that on on someone as you know uh, something they have to do. Um, in, in that sense. John, I want to uh, definitely let everyone know about uh, your book that I would certainly recommend. Matt Memories, My Wild Life in Pro Wrestling, Country Music, and with the Mets. I think you're the only person that can claim uh, careers in, in all three of these uh, sections. And I'm and back in baseball now, which is really very exciting for me. So it's kind of full circle moment. And if you want to go relive... Um, Pro Wrestling Spotlight. You can go patreon.com slash John Arezzi and search for Pro Wrestling Spotlight for retrospectives, looking back at all the the entire run of Pro Wrestling Spotlight, including um, during this time period in 1992 as well. It's, uh, I really like the format of it where you'll hear the, the clips and then you get your real-time reaction to them all these years later. It's a yeah, really and the, format. And the patrons who go to the Patreon account, they have the entire uh, archives of every show uh as is unedited with commercials. So you could really dive, you could dive deep and listen to all these shows in their entirety uh, on the Patreon account. So it's, um, it was a pleasure for you guys to, uh, for me to meet you and talk to you. And I, I really appreciate the invite today. Thanks very much, John. We, we appreciate it and all the best. Thank yeah. you so much. And, and just thank you for being, you know, somebody who took wrestling stories seriously and, and in my, my opinion, covered them the way that, that they deserve to be covered. 
Well, thank you for that. All right. Thanks, John. Take care, guys. John Arezzi joining us. Um, certainly, both of us went back and listened to that episode. I think it was March 15th of 1992 of going back. And it, it is really surreal to hear like, here in 1992. It's to set the scene. Uh, like this is a major station in New York. And you've got all these people in town for the Donahue show the next day. So you have John Arezzi hosting with Dave Meltzer is in studio with them. Superstar Billy Graham. They've got Bruno on the phone. Billy Jack Haynes calls in. I mean, this was kind of the epicenter for the coverage at the time that here was a station with a lot of reach and a story that, you know, you you weren't, it's such a different dynamic than the Donahue show to contrast the next day, which Bill Donahue does an excellent job on, on the, on that panel, but it's everybody just confined to, you know, 30 second answers. And here you get a lot more kind of, you know, detailed answers and, uh, Barry Orton's on this show as well. I mean, it's it's a very thorough uh, rundown of what's going on in real time in 1992. Yeah, I, I, listening to it, I, I get the impression that the, the station they were on like reached Stanford, so they were you know under the impression that they were you know potentially being listened to by by Vince and by executives at um, at, at WF at the time. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating listen that I recommend people uh, check out, and it's sort of maybe kind of you know, underlines the dilemma that we still deal with today in that mainstream media are, are the ones who have the platform that results in pressure being put on companies for action to actually be taken. Yet they don't always have the research and, and the knowledge of all the background of all this information, which wrestling media tends to have, but they don't have the platform. They don't have the reach of, of the mainstream outlets. Yeah, I think that's, you know, a, a part of this is like the the reach, the backing and the the resources uh, that, that come with it and having those those right people in in different positions. It's pretty key when you look at the, the coverage of this. We do have another super chat here from Eric who sends in uh, $5. Do you feel now would be a good time for the workers to unionize? Everything coming out has shown that talent safety and rights need added protection. I don't think there's ever been a bad time for talent to uh, unionize. And I think you only have to look at the earnings reports and and ask yourself, like, what percentage um, is due talent? And I think whatever your answer is, it's it's more than the percentage that is paid out. And it seems to be much more of an issue on the MMA side than it is pro wrestling, where you don't hear any undercurrents of organization or even discussing like these pie in the sky theories about doing this. I I would have thought like if there was a recent event to go through that you would think maybe the talent would have some um, intuition to move forward. It was during the pandemic when it was so vital that the company produced their television television, that they are relying on these rights fees that the workers have no guaranteed percentage of, they may benefit from them, but it's purely at the discretion of the company. And without the talent during that time, they're not producing that television. And, and I don't think we talk enough about how Roman Reigns decided the biggest star that they have decided to sit out and i think we all had gotten the impression well maybe it was it was because of you know the cancer issues that he had had but then he came out in an interview sometime after that and said no it, it was just my preference out, out of safety to, to to stay home during that time and it just you know if the biggest star was willing to do that i don't i don't know that that means you think you could have unionized but you at least i mean that's what you need is you need the, the biggest stars who have the, the least to gain in a unionization situation um to, to stand with you because they're the most important talents to the business obviously and if you remember during during the pandemic era, there was the story that 
you know, mask wearing was kind of lax backstage. And you had Kevin Owens, who he didn't put up some big fight or argument. He just simply said, listen, I'm going home like this. If this is how it's going to be enforced, I'm I'm going home. And There's a story that he went to Vince about this. Correct? He went to Vince and the response was like they were going to get more uh, more serious about mask wearing. And that was just one person just stating, listen, this is not, he wasn't being confrontational. It was just, listen, I'm not going to be around this. When Roman Reigns came back, do you remember that time? It was one of his first matches back on a pay-per-view and they go to fight in the stands and he puts a mask on. Like he puts an actual mask on to brawl in the crowd just as a preventive measure. Um, Roman Reigns did that. Yes. I I remember this very clearly. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. But I, I just, you know, it's it's something that I feel a lot of talents after their careers are over might look back and listen, we're there are talents making enormous amounts. Matt Riddle was just on the MMA hour today, noting that right up in the year be he was he was let go, like he had gone from five hundred thousand dollars as like his entry level, I assume when he got to the main roster, and then it went to seven fifty and he was making a million dollar downside by the end. So that tells you like the the number of millionaires that are in this company is easily the highest in in history. So they're making very good money. You're not as incentivized to maybe be rocking the boat. But that said, a million dollars is still less when you look at the amount of revenue growth for this company over the last 10 years and what what talent the talent percentage should be higher. Whatever you're making, it should be more. And I would suggest that in W's case, I, I, I do believe that wrestler compensation has gone up over the last several years, but that's probably not due to the kindness of, of the hearts of, of, of WWE's uh, talent relations, but due to the c- competition that has increased for talent, uh, especially with the existence of, of AEW, but other organizations too. And I mean, the only, the only other thing I, I want to add here is that when we're thinking about the difference in, when we're thinking about worker treatment across TKO, I think UFC fighters, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I, I believe these arguments that they're, they're underpaid, but the advantage that they do have over WWE wrestlers is that UFC fighters, when, once they get in, into the octagon, they can either win or lose on their own merits. And in the case of WWE wrestlers, so much of this is based on the subjective whims of whoever's, you know, dictating creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many stories that you, you can go through. Uh, Donald Cerrone recently just did a, an interview, and he fought Conor McGregor on the first ESPN Plus pay-per-view back in 2019. And he he explained, like, getting to fight Conor McGregor, I didn't make anything more for the fact that I was fighting Conor McGregor. I made the same I would have fought anybody making. He had uh, an amount of $200,000, and that's what he made for that fight with Conor McGregor. And this was a pay-per-view that did, I believe, 1.3 million buys, probably around 70 bucks a buy in 2019 on like that was the pay-per-view that there was a huge surge for ESPN plus with Conor McGregor's first fight on the platform. And here's a fighter that $200,000 was his takeaway as the B side of that main event. Um, There's countless stories uh, of this and, you know, some of it you can, you can look at and look at management and companies. I think also like if you are the talent and the fighters, it's on you as well that it no one is going to voluntarily hand over more money if they don't have to. It is going to be in a pressure situation. If there is an AEW, that's a pressure situation where we want to retain this talent. Or if there's some organizational effort, can that create that pressure? That's what fighters are trying to do right now with this antitrust case. We'll see if that works out for them or not. But um, 
there you go. That's uh, that's your 10 minute answer. That's what you get for a $5 super chat here on the show. Um, Want to touch on a few more stories just before we wrap up, including this legal case that is going on and um, directly involves uh, the man to your right here. Um, not directly, indirectly, but we should say. Indirectly. Um, so, Brendan, do you want to ex- explain this? The WWE has issued a legal complaint against Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, and it regards the disclosure of what they believe to be private information involving the city of San Antonio as it relates to last year's Royal Rumble event, which was staged at the Alamo Dome after you and another party had made a request, a public records request. Yeah. So this is last year's Royal Rumble, not this most recent Royal Rumble, the, the one that, that occurred in 2023 in, in San Antonio. And I made a records request, I believe that night, uh, the night of the it was, show. It was the day, yes. It yeah. was the same day as the Royal Rumble. I did a cross To get it as soon as possible. Um, and we did get, and I did report on, yeah. we got the the attendance numbers, ticket sales. We didn't, we know what the gate is. There's a report on com for everybody to read about what that was. That's where, This is where we get the infamous heartbeat emails between a W employee and, and city employees about how they formulated their, their announced attendance number. Uh, and then we have what the real attendance number was in there. So I got records from that. Uh, you know, including gate receipts, emails, all that. Uh, they they filed a uh, they they filed so that they could not they wouldn't have to disclose the bidding agreement. So there was a contract apparently between the city and WWE, where the city paid presumably paid uh, WWE or gave them something in exchange for bringing the World Rumble to the city of San Antonio. Of course, we know that the the one of the big things that WWE is trying to do is get site fees for all of their premium live events. And the, the notion is that when you have a major WWE event like the Royal Rumble in your city, you're going to have a lot of people traveling in and spending money on hotels and restaurants, et cetera. So that's a good thing for your local economy. That's why a local municipality like the city of San Antonio would spend money, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions to bring uh, the Royal Rumble to their city. So there's an, a contract that dictated all of that. And the, and the city went to the, the state to say, hey, is it OK if we don't comply or, or that, that we have an ex- exemption here from disclosing this contract to me? So because it, it fits one of these exemptions in the Texas public records law, which is that if it to, to long story short, it, if it you know constitutes a trade secret, which is what W is arguing here. So at that time in April, they got a ruling from the, the attorney general to say, yes. We think this meets the exemption criteria. You don't have to disclose it. So I figured that was the end of that um, until I got an email a couple of days ago from W's lawyer who is representing them in this case. And, and I found that there was actually in October, there was another request from something called uh, intelligence options, which was, I, I presume, you know, doing some consulting for someone who was suing WWE. I don't, I don't know which, which case it was, um, but they, they made a request related to basically any, anything involving the city and WWE since 2015, which would entail that agreement. Apparently that was reviewed again and it was ruled this time that they do have to disclose that bidding agreement. What's pointed out in this lawsuit is that, is that that second bidder, which was supporting a lawsuit against WWE that has since been settled. And again, that, that could be anything from the Panini lawsuit, the racial discrimination lawsuit, the MLW lawsuit. Um, that, In any case, WWE says that law, lawsuit has since been settled. So that requester is moot. 
Um, but, but there is still me out there that they, they have to that they would have to disclose this to. So W doesn't want to do that. They they feel that it would it would hurt their ability to negotiate favorably for site fees. So they are suing the Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton, to avoid have avoid the city having to disclose this. Um, so that's the long and short of it. Um, anything else? No, I think that the argument is, you know, WWE side is believing that these are confidential trade secrets and the oppositional argument to that would be if you are seeking out public tax dollars, there is a level of transparency that those taxpayers are required to be aware of what where their dollars are going toward. And I would also argue that even if you are I don't even know how like deeply you would be reporting on what information you would be getting, but I would state that whatever the contract is with the city of San Antonio, every market is going to have different demands, different expectations, different um, abilities that I don't know if you can just make a a comparable that a, an an event contract for the city of San Antonio is going to be equal to that of going to say Minneapolis for a WrestleMania events are going to have different levels of staging, different levels of popularity attached to them, different um, travel options. I don't know if you can make that one-to-one comparison, but I mean, obviously I think the greater picture here is WWE that is going to want to clamp down on this as they are expanding more of these types of projects and gaining site fees worldwide. Right. So one thing I will say is, you know, I, I respect that, you know, this is the law and and NW has a right to defend its interests here. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I am interested in, in reporting on it. If it's ruled that the city has to release it to me, I think as, as, as you just mentioned, John, I think it's in, it's one, if it's one thing to report on attendance and ticket sales, and that's interesting to people who want to understand the wrestling business. But it's it's another thing to to consider that it's in the public's interest to know how their tax dollars are being spent. So that that's more important than reporting on attendance and ticket sales. So I, th- I think you know the the people of San Antonio and and other municipalities that do deals with WWE have a right to know. And and it would in fact it would benefit people across municipalities to know what what San Antonio paid for the Royal Rumble in 2023 so that those cities can favor, uh, can, can negotiate more favorably, uh, in the future. So yeah, I'd see if, if it's released to me, I will, I will be reporting it. Last story here. We're going to talk about some Lucha news. Okay. So, um, it and seems the other that- thing, just if I yeah. jump back to, sorry, the, and, and another thing we should mention here is that if I don't know, part of what's being argued by WWE is that it will hurt their ability to negotiate. I mean, some of this information is already public. We know from a a local publication about Royal Rumble this year that a half a million dollars was paid by the St. Pete uh, Clearwater Tourism Organization. Half a million for that one. So that gives you some idea. We know that Orlando bid $850,000 for the same event for Royal Rumble. They went for a lower amount in a neighboring city in Florida. What was pointed out to me is that at Camping World Stadium, which is the, the big stadium in in Orlando where they've run WrestleMania before the pro bowl took place in very early February mm. in, in this month. So maybe it just wasn't, wasn't feasible to do the Royal rumble in, in Orlando this year. So that may, may explain why they went with Tampa, uh, St. Pete Clearwater with the lower fee. Um, but we do know in, in, in other cases, we know that backlash 
uh, according to a public records request that I got from the local government in Puerto Rico, that uh, a value equal to about $1.8 million was paid for the backlash event, which also came with a smackdown uh, in, in May of last year. We know uh, through government disclosures, I believe, that Clash of the Castle in Cardiff, uh, it, it looks like got the equivalent to, to U.S. dollars of, of $2.8 million. So some of this information is already public. If Mark Shapiro disclosed the Australia figure that a series of shows were worth $16 million, dollars, yes, yeah. between to US include, and WWE. To include the Elimination Chamber event that just, just took place uh, in Perth. So if, if part of what W is arguing here is that the disclosure of this inf- information will hurt their ability to negotiate, um, a lot of this information is already public. So mm-hmm. now – there may be more. I'm sure they're also contract. going deeper that it's it's beyond just the figures. I think right. they, they there may be a lot more in that bidding contract. I mean, in fact, I'd have to go in here and read from the complaint. But this bidding contract, um, this bidding contract may, may reveal a lot more than that. Um, some of the language that they're using in the in the complaint is is clearly sculpted to to reflect what's in in the public records law under the exemption uh, criteria. So. So, yeah, I'm, you know, looking forward to how this plays out. Last story here. We'll talk about these uh, CMLL visas. So, um, essentially, uh, this was a while back. Uh, Mass Republic had been working with a a San Antonio-based group, full-blown wrestling, to sponsor these visas for various CMLL talent. And this has allowed many luchadors to come up to the U.S. and work legally in the United States. And... What's happened is that they have encountered problems here that are looking to affect 19 CMLL performers that their visas uh, are basically going to be held up as of uh, the end of February, which is now. Some of the people that are affected by this are significant names like Volador Jr., Soberano Jr., Templario, Hechicero, who you just saw in AEW programming, Blue Panther, and... This is sort of the way it's been described to us, Brandon, is that this was a communications problem uh, with CMLL, and at least for the foreseeable future, could be two months or so that these visas may be um, – th- they're going to have to get these visas renewed, and that timing is important because that would coincide with WrestleMania weekend, which you would think you know, for some of these performers, they could very well be booked that weekend given all of the shows that are happening in Philadelphia. Yeah. It looks like one of the biggest things it's going to impact is, is those WrestleMania weekend shows. Um, as, as far as wrestlers who have appeared on AEW recently, it's like you mentioned, most of them, Volador Jr., Hechicero and Mascara Dorada. So I, I don't know if there were plans to, to use them again on AEW TV, but, but those three wrestlers who have appeared on AEW TV recently w- would be affected. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, other luchadors, other other Mexican-born wrestlers who's who are not affected by this, that we should probably clarify that so there isn't any confusion. We're, we're told that Mystico, his visa is fine. Um, Esfinge, Star Junior, Atlantis, Atlantis Junior, that they're they're not a part of this. And Commander, and Commander, well, and Commander in there yes. as well. And Atlantis yeah. Junior, as luck would have it, is wrestling on Dynamite tonight in Huntsville, Alabama, against Chris Jericho. So yeah, he is unaffected. But we'll continue to follow this story because you know so, several of these names are significant ones uh, when it comes to CMLL talent and having more exposure in the U.S. as well. So yeah, there is that to uh, follow as well. 
There you have it. You can all exhale another edition of Pollock and Thurston in the books. And we want to thank John Arezzi for stopping by and chatting with us. Again, you can go back and uh, check out some of his shows. Pro Wrestling Spotlight, just search for it online or go to patreon.com slash John Arezzi. And tonight, it is Rewind to Dynamite with myself and Wei Ting. Right after Dynamite, tune in here on the Post Wrestling YouTube channel. And of course, you can jump on board at postwrestlingcafe.com if you want even more that's out there because everyone knows more content that is the key to happiness including sundays at 11 a.m eastern time but everyone knows hey wait a minute i'm changing my calendar this week even with an extra day in february march 1st is coming meaning a free edition of wrestlenomics this sunday you know it and um so that'll be free for everybody on youtube and and i'll probably stream it to other platforms too um there is a tony Khan call tomorrow so any news coming out of that We'll discuss then and um, all the latest business news and professional wrestling on Sunday, free for everybody. That's coming up. Check out the free edition of WrestleNomics Radio. And if you want to go back and check out our other show from earlier this week, Nick Kaniski on the show discussing his allegation against Terry Garvin. Um, really important show if you want to go uh, check that out as well. So that's going to wrap things up. Thanks to everybody for tuning in live or downloading the show after the fact. That is it for another edition of Pollock and Thurston. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.